When I was 14 years old, I was madly in love with teen heartthrob Nick Jonas. I also believed that if I prayed hard enough, God would bring him to me. We would meet on a bus in Israel, where I lived at the time, and he'd see my iPod playing a song by Elvis Costello, his favorite artist, and then he would say to me, Kylie, where have you been all my life? I had this deal with God. I would put my iPod on shuffle and ask him to play two songs back to back. The first was Good Night and Goodbye by the Jonas Brothers, followed by Stevie Wonder's Superstition. If the songs were played back to back, I'd know that God was listening and that my prayers would be answered. If they weren't, I would just press shuffle again. Fast forward four years. I'm spending the summer in New York City after graduating high school, and as I'm walking through Chelsea, I notice none other than Nick Jonas sitting outside by himself at a restaurant. I stopped at the spot, pretended to ask for a menu, and then when the waitress was gone, I asked Nick for a picture and told him that I was supposed to date him. The feelings were not mutual. Obviously that technique wasn't going to work with Nick or with God. I'm Kylie Unell, and this is How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days. This week, we're trying prayer. If you've heard the first episode, you know that as part of Elul, the final month before the Jewish New Year, I'm trying out different ways to find and fix my soul. We Jews are encouraged to do this during Elul every year. Unlike everything else on the Jewish calendar, there is no real instruction manual for Elul. And yet, we're still supposed to take stock of ourselves, connect to God, and prepare for the holiest days of the Jewish year. We're just supposed to figure out how on our own. This is my first week at it, and so I figured I'd try the thing Jews have been doing the longest, prayer. Instead of taking on all of the prayers, because where do you even start? I picked the one that stands out the most during this month. Psalm 27. The only time you'll find this psalm as part of a prayer service is during the seven weeks from the start of Elul to the end of Sukkot. So it's pretty tied to this time of the year in particular. If you're in a Sephardi synagogue surrounded by Jews with backgrounds from Spain and North Africa, you'll hear Psalm 27 after morning and afternoon prayers. In an Ashkenazi shul with the European Jews, you'll hear it after morning and evening prayers. Why these traditions differ is well above my pay grade. Also, because the tradition really only goes back to the 1700s, it's still making its way to the rest of the Jewish communities across the globe. So the way it's done elsewhere may vary. The history of saying Psalm 27 during Elul has a couple small threads going back earlier, but the real genesis of this practice we sort of follow today comes from the Polish rabbi Benjamin Benish Hakohen in 1706. Hakohen, a Kabbalist who acquired a reputation as a Baal Shem, or a wonder worker, wrote that one who recites this psalm in a state of holiness, purity, and great concentration will have their prayers answered. 
He emphasized that it also has the power to change divine decrees. Tradition attributes the psalm to King David. It begins confidently. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? As the psalm continues, David's sense of trust fades, and he ends up begging God for help. He writes, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, have mercy on me, answer me. If there were any piece of scripture that I could have written myself, it'd be this one. Pretty sure I said something similar, though far less eloquent last week as I prepared to negotiate my rent with my sketchy New York City landlord. In the midst of his distress, David cries out, for though my mother and father have abandoned me, God gathers me in. I've always had trouble with this line. I get the feeling of doubt and struggle, but why should I feel like my parents have abandoned me when they're very much present? At this point, I didn't know where else to go. So I went to the woman who has been helping me for the 28 years I've been on the planet. Hi, mom. Sweetheart. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Are you busy? Not as busy as the person doing my nails. But. <laughs> okay, it's a really quick question. I'm trying to figure out something, and I figure you might be able to help me. There's this line in Psalm 27, verse 10, that says, Though my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me in. Ouch. And exactly. <laughs> well, I'm confused about it because I'm calling you right now because you haven't abandoned me. It's tempting. It's tempting right now. <laughs> I don't I don't know how to make I don't know what it means and I'm curious if you have any read on it. I'm going to just hope and assume that it means that though they released you to the world, Hashem still has you wrapped up. Do you feel like you've released me to the world? I have. You're out of the house. <laughs> you're kicked out, you're on your own, you're getting your education, you're wearing what you want to wear. I no longer get control over what you wear, how you wear your hair, who you become friends with, etc. etc. I guess some would say Hashem still has control over that. He <laughs> can put those thoughts in your mind. Yep, that's not a good outfit for me. <laughs> But I can't. Do you feel like you had, so you had more control for a period of time? Oh, yeah. We have pictures. You used to dress cute. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, obviously I picked out what you wore. I picked out your school. I picked out who you, you know, who you were exposed to at least. You could decide whether you wanted to let them enjoy your company or what have you. But at, the, at some point you got to decide for yourself what you wanted to wear and then Hashem had you thank you my pleasure have fun I will now okay <laughs> bye <laughs> love you All right, good luck bye I love you okay so as my mom just pointed out the psalm is saying that it's not really me who's in control we also already know that no amount of prayer is going to land me a pop star so how exactly am I supposed to approach prayer during Elul in order to get my soul sorted out? I decided I'd reach out to another person doing the work to try to figure it out. Sarah Horowitz wrote an incredible book called Here All Along, 
finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. Before that, she was a senior speechwriter for Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's head speechwriter. She's currently training to be a hospital chaplain and works with the concept of prayer daily. Sarah. Hello. It's so good to see you. The last time I saw you, we were at the nerds table at a one table design session. So true. <laughs> we, we were the group that was like, we just want to figure out how to make Jewish ideas and text cool for millennials. <laughs> Which is so true. It's such a specific type. And so I was like, I don't know if I'm going to talk about prayer. There's nobody better than somebody who I know has thought about this, cares about Jewish ideas and Jewish life and making it something that's relevant to you, but also somebody that I know I could sit at a table with and just geek out with for a few hours on a Sunday. I loved geeking out with you then, and I am so excited to geek out with you again today. What is prayer to you? Yeah, well, I was like technically raised with it in the sense that we did get dragged twice a year to shul on the high holidays for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And, you know, prayer to me was just this obligation I had to endure for four hours over two days. Um, uh, It wasn't until I was an adult and started actually learning about Judaism myself on my own terms, that I began to realize that actually the Siddur, our prayer book, it's actually pretty deep, but you need a tremendous amount of learning to even begin to grasp its depth and complexity. It feels to me a lot of times that it's like a relationship. Like some days you're in it, some days you're feeling it, some days you're like, I just want to talk to my boyfriend. (laughs) I just want to talk to my partner. (laughs) I just want to talk to this person. I really want to have this connection. And other days you're like, I do not. If they call me, I'm going to like hang up. I don't want to hear from them at all. And it's like those ups and downs. And I think for me, and I'd be curious if you felt this, I I put a lot of pressure on myself to feel that connection. Like it's only real if Mm -hmm. I feel it. And I haven't really acknowledged, I think I'm trying to more, that the human experience, prayer is a part of the human experience. So I'm not always going to feel super connected to it. And it's okay if I don't. And it's okay if I don't do it because I'm not feeling it. Like, I think I felt a lot of guilt about it um, and just pressure to do it right or to feel something when I was doing it. I totally understand that. And I would say, like, let go of that pressure. Because first of all, you know, the kind of scripted communal synagogue prayer, that's just one type of Jewish worship. That's just one technique that we have to connect with the divine right? That, that's one tool. And for some weird reason, we think it's the only tool. And we put so much pressure on ourselves. And we say, if I cannot connect to God and feel this heart opening, life transforming sense when uttering these words, then like I'm failing, I'm bad. It doesn't work for me. We have personal unscripted prayer to God. We have blessings practice. We have meditation. I mean, there's all these different techniques. So I think putting so much pressure on this one approach is tough and not even necessarily faithful to Jewish tradition. Why do you think that prayer matters? Or do you even think it matters? I do think it matters. And I think it matters for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that Jewish prayer is attempting to cultivate certain mind states in us, right? It's attempting to cultivate gratitude. It's attempting to cultivate awe. It's attempting to cultivate humility. These are good things. 
the first word, if you were going to do the traditional Jewish prayers, are moda ani, grateful am I. Right? The first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is express gratitude for the gift of your life, which you did nothing mm-hmm. to earn. If you take that seriously, if you try to feel it, even if you don't succeed every day or even every week, even if you succeed like once every two months, that's so powerful. Yeah. Right? And all those prayers with like the kind of over-the-top flowery language about nature you know, some of it's quite beautiful and it's trying to cultivate a sense of awe. So I think prayer is trying to cultivate certain mind states. I also think it's attempting to get us to soften. Mm. You know, I think we kind of go around dealing with the stresses of work, life. I get kind of frustrated and angry and hard and kind of caught up in things. And prayer is a moment where we're trying to kind of open our hearts a little bit. For some people, scripted communal prayer does that. The music, the community, these words that have been handed down to us century after century for so long and that Jews around the world are saying, like, people can find that very heart opening, but you have to do work for that to work for you, right? Yeah. You actually have to do, put in the effort to understand these prayers, to understand their nuances and depths and to interpret them for yourself. Mm. I mean, if you're just trying to be transformed by reading words that you kind of half understand and don't necessarily feel comfortable with, you're probably not going to find a line to God that way. <laughs> That's probably not going to work for you. Yeah. What was the moment when prayer came to life? So I think a moment when prayer really was particularly moving for me, a sort of early moment where I realized the potential of prayer was when someone was talking to me about the Hashkivayu prayer, which is part of the evening liturgy. And this is a prayer in which we ask God to spread over us a canopy of peace. And the person who was actually Rabbi Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, a wonderful rabbi who teaches a lot in Jewish meditation contexts, she said, you know, it's interesting that we translate the word for canopy because that word is actually sukkah. You don't really need to translate sukkah, right? We, we know, Jews tend to know that a sukkah is this fragile open air structure that we build at Sukkot and that we eat our meals in. We know it provides us almost no protection from the elements. So you're going to get rained on. You're going to get, food's going to get blown over. And what a strange request. We don't ask God for an underground bunker of peace. We do not ask God for a fortified castle of peace. We're not asking God for perfect safety. We're asking God to be at peace amidst the winds and the storms and the rains of our lives. And, you know, when she said that, I thought, like, what a deeply profound prayer. Like, that's something I can get behind. You know, that's something that I yearn for. And I think that if you are willing to do the work, you know, it's hard work to actually unearth the meanings and make these prayers relevant and real today. But I think if you do that work, they can open up to you. Have you ever had an experience where you said a prayer without knowing what it meant and felt that heart-opening soul experience? Or was it only when you had understanding? Because I feel like there have been times, like I remember the first time I owned prayer for myself. I grew up occasionally doing it in, in school settings and wanting it to be something that was deep for me. But when I really owned it, I was alone in a room and while I was interning in Washington, D.C., and I had this sea door that I ordered from Amazon <laughs> and <laughs> it just gotten in the mail. And I, and I said the Shmona Esrei, the Amida, which is a series of 18 prayers, 18 benedictions that you say, that you say standing. And I don't think that I fully understood what it was that I was saying, but the act of speaking to God and being connected to tradition opened me up. Just the act of doing that, that kind of continuity opened me up, even though I didn't really understand fully what I was saying. 
I totally hear that. And I actually think that's true for a lot of people, including me to some extent. Like when you say the Shema, like, you know, even for Jews who have very little connection to Judaism, like they often will remember the Shema. They'll remember its melody and something about it tugs at something very visceral for them. Right. So I think when I was younger, before I started learning it about Judaism, I did have that sense when I heard that prayer of like, oh, this is mine. Somehow this connects me to something greater. Do I think necessarily that was particularly profound for me? I don't. Right. It was sort of a, you know, I think it can be very profound. Yeah. It sounds like it actually was quite profound for you. Yeah. So I think that that can be quite powerful. But I also love what Rabbi Jeff Roth once said, which is if you say Mona Ani and you don't know it means thankful am I, it may take you somewhere, but not necessarily to thankfulness. So I don't think these prayers are just random incantations that we say. They're actually designed to take us somewhere. And look, in your case, it actually took you somewhere very deep, like somewhere that connected you to something greater. And that's wonderful. And I do think these prayers have certain intentions for us. So I don't think it's enough. I don't think that kind of more general feeling of connection is quite enough. I think we're missing out on a dimension. And when I say we, I mean, (laughs) I'm still missing out on so many dimensions of prayers because yeah, I've done some work, but not nearly enough. It's a lifetime. It's totally a lifetime. So I don't have any judgment for people who struggle with prayers because I'm one of them. So I'm going to go into this prayer experience and prayer is something that I, I try and improve at, I guess, or I try and, I try and connect to more as I, grow up. What would you say to somebody who wants to pray but has no idea where to start? Start with unscripted personal prayer. I I think, you know, we kind of tend to throw Jews into synagogues and expect that they're going to connect to God in a language that they don't really understand, surrounded by lots of other people who are often very stiff and formal looking and not particularly vulnerable. And we expect that they're going to find God there when they've never actually tried to just talk to God on their own. So I actually think to get started, do some thinking about like, what, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the universe, to life, to deeper meaning, to the higher ethical standard, to an interventionist God? Like what, who are you talking to? I think is helpful to kind of do a little thinking about, and you can do some learning about various conceptions of God to figure out what resonates with you. And I would just try some unscripted personal prayer. That said, might not work for everyone. I think it could help just to do a little bit of work with the fundamental prayers, the Shema, right? The Amidah, like these are, you're going to be saying these prayers a lot in, in the Jew, once you enter the world of Jewish prayer. So what does the Shema mean to you? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is what? Is that a simple statement of monotheism? Is that a statement that we are all one, all connected? Is that, you know, what does that mean to you? What can that mean to you? How can that be powerful for you? You know, the Amidah, like, how can these various blessings, like, what do they mean to you? Like, really start doing some work to figure that out. And maybe it is a sense of being connected to your ancestors as you're reciting Abraham, Isaac, you know, Sarah, Rich. like, as you're reciting this, maybe it's about a connection to your ancestors. Whatever it is, I think doing some basic work of translating and making the prayers real for you today can help. So even if you're kind of lost in most of the service, when you get to these core prayers, you can be found. One thing that I'm picking up on in what you're saying that I think is especially important is that we have time. Yes. I am somebody, and I think a lot of us feel like we have to get this down now. I have to understand how to do this now. If I'm going to pray, if, if I'm going to use prayer as a means of connection, then I need to have it down tomorrow. And right now, we're in the middle of Elul. and 
we're taking 30 days to try and connect to our soul and take stock of ourselves and face God. And it's a, it's a limited period of time. But a takeaway from this is that it may be limited, but it will actually transform us at least for the year, if not for the rest of our lives. I think that's exactly right. You know, this is not, you don't figure out prayer yeah. once and for all. That is just I not a thing. I wish that were not the case. <laughs> I want to get it right. <laughs> right? This is unfortunately for people like us who are like, how do I become valedictorian exactly. of prayer? Like, that's not actually a thing, yeah. right? This is not something to master. This is something to engage with. Mm. This is something to learn from. It's something that you allow to constantly change you and move you and open you. And that's going to be very different when you're 15 than it is when you're 40 than it is when you're 90. Different words will jump out of the page according to what's going on in your life at the moment. And I think giving yourself the permission to realize that you don't master it once and for all, that it's kind of a lifelong process. I think that's important. Oh, you are speaking... I think to my soul, I feel like it's my soul. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, actually one more tip I would give to someone starting out is just to understand our sitter, our prayer book, it's not meant to be read literally as something that is conveying information to Mm. you, right? Like that is not how it's meant to be read. It's meant to be read like a poem. You know, when you read a poem that's like, my love is like a red, red rose, You don't say, well, that's ridiculous. A rose is a flower. Love (laughs) is an emotion. That's illogical. You get it. It's a metaphor, right? So like when you read a prayer that says that if you worship God, God will give you sun for your fields and rain and your cattle will grow and all this stuff. But if you worship idols, cattle going to die, fields going to die, you'll starve. I mean, I don't think that's true. Like that's just I don't have a field. not true. I live in New York right? City. I don't even have a field. I mean, I've got this terrible little garden on my balcony, and no matter how often I, you know, no matter how passionately I worship God, it's also going to die because I'm bad at gardening, right? Yeah. But like, so if I read it that way as a literal conveyance of facts, then yeah, it's kind of absurd. But if I read it metaphorically, and I think to myself, you know what? When I worship idols in my life, meaning status, wealth, beauty, fame, when I get caught up in those idols my life really does become barren. It really does dry up. But when I worship, in quotation, things like love, justice, friendship, compassion, when I make those my highest good, my life, it flourishes. It becomes fruitful. So understood that way, okay, now I see the wisdom in that prayer. Now I can feel that prayer. But again, you got to do that work. You have to allow, I have to allow for time. It's time yes. and it's patience. And it kind of feels like the month of Elul, at least at this, this starting point that I'm very much at, is about cultivating these kind of virtues that we think about. Patience, courage. Yes. Love. I don't know if that's a virtue, but um, kindness. <laughs> but, the, but this kind of, this virtue is, is patience. And it's seeing yourself in the context of, time and that this isn't something that needs to happen immediately. It's so countercultural. You know, one of the lessons I've learned over the course of many meditation retreats is that when you sit there thinking, I want to be open, I want this thing to happen. It doesn't happen. It's funny how that that works, you know? So when you're sitting there praying, being like, it needs to be this way. It needs to be this way. It's not going to be that way, right? Because you're just resisting. I think there's deep power in just sometimes just stating what's true. So if you're praying and you are feeling nothing and you are miserable, 
you can just say, wow, I'm feeling absolutely nothing. And that is so frustrating to me because I want to feel something and I yearn to feel something. And you can just tap into that yearning to feel, you know, it's that sadness at not feeling anything into that grief over feeling distant from God, right? That's real. Yeah. That's a form of prayer. That yearning is such a deep and profound form of prayer. I think this sense of like, I have to master the words. And if I say them all right, then I'll feel something. I mean, maybe it doesn't often happen to me. That's quite rarely. So I don't know, you know, you may be, be maybe better at this. Maybe you're going to be the valedictorian of this and I'm not going to be, and I, I'm going to have to accept I will that, be magna but, you know, cum laude think- at prayer and you'll be summa. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, and it's like, it's so funny, but this is the kind of secular mindset that we try to apply to something spiritual and they're just two different languages. Wow, wow, wow. I feel more human. I feel more human speaking to you and... Maybe that's what I having feel the same way. <laughs> that might be what having a soul feels like. I don't know. I have to wait until the end of the month to find out. Then we'll see. I'm quite certain that you have a soul. <laughs> like I'm quite certain that is. I'm unsure of many things, but the fact that you have a soul is something I feel quite confident. Thank of. God. At least there's one person that is you and my mom. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. This was great. Oh, this is so great. There are three words that stand out to me from the conversations I had today. Control, softening, and trust. Those just so happen to be the three things that I struggle most with in life, and I've spoken to enough people and read enough to know that these struggles are not unique to me. And yet, that doesn't make it any easier, at least not at this point in my life. Here's my thinking with prayer, at least based on these conversations. It's a tool that we can use to help us accept that we are not in control, that we need to soften and open our hearts, and that we have to trust in God that we will be okay. So much easier said than done. The last line of Psalm 27 gives me one line that I'm going to hold on to for strength. Which I'm translating as hope to God and he will strengthen and give courage to your heart and hope to God. It is with this hope that I will be visiting a prayer expert, one of my favorite rabbis of all time, Rabbi Dov Yonakorn, who is the Chabad rabbi at New York University. Join me next time as I experience prayer with the only rabbi I know who went from being a grateful dead roadie to a spiritual leader in the Jewish community. Until next time, I'm Kylie Younell, and this is How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days. Soul in 30 Days is brought to you by Tablet Studios and is hosted by me, Kylie Unell. This episode was produced by Leah Leibovitz and Josh Cross. Please go rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. For more information about this or any other of Tablet's podcasts, visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts.